Okay, if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Matthew chapter 7. We are in kind of our mini-series on, uh, on the, the Sermon on the Mount, looking really at Matthew 6 and 7. And, you know, sometimes I think if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, it can feel a little bit kind of like it's Jesus' greatest hits, and it's just kind of these, these separate tracks, almost like little, you know, Twitter Twitter, uh, you know, tweets or whatever that Jesus is making. But really, I would encourage you, maybe even this afternoon, to go back and read through the whole of the Sermon on the Mount so that you can actually pick up on some of the recurring themes and the threads that really tie what Jesus is saying here together. If you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about what we treasure becomes what we love and that actually what we love then becomes what we serve. And then if we are serving the wrong things, what it creates in us is actually a deep underlying anxiety. It creates in us worry because those false counterfeit gods always disappoint us. Jesus is actually then continuing to talk about what it means when we, instead of resting in our heavenly Father's love and care, begin to to function with an anxious heart and what that means for those outside of the church and for the relationships that we have. So keep in mind all of those connections as we read here Jesus talking about how we are to treat one another in Matthew 7. So Matthew 7, starting in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us before we start. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It is sharper than any two-edged sword that pierces to our hearts. And so, Lord, we we come to, to you today as those willing to be pierced, willing to have their hearts laid open before you. I pray that you would do that work in me, Lord, by the power of your spirit, that you would do that work in all of us, that we might be transformed today by your word. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, we are going to talk about judgment today. And you know, if you were to to look up this word judgment in a dictionary, really any dictionary, you're probably going to come up with two basic categories for what we mean by judgment. Most of the definitions fall into two basic categories. And the first category is the idea of having or using good judgment. It's about discernment, about the ability to be critical in the way that we think, to, to know the difference between one thing and another. In fact, if you're, if you're a parent of a teen, you've probably said this to your child, you know, okay, you can go to that party, but use good judgment. That means use your head, be smart, Know what to do at the right times. Know uh, what the difference between right and wrong, between wise and unwise, between what is right and what is wrong, 
What is true and what is false? That's judgment. That's one of the ways that we can understand judgment. The second definition that you would probably likely find in any dictionary is more of kind of courtroom language. It's declarative. Here is one thing that has been declared as being innocent or being guilty. There has been a judgment made. It is more about condemnation than it is about discernment. It is more about what, uh, what, what kind of the judge is saying is right or wrong. And then you, oftentimes, the punishment that is attached to that. So on one hand, we have a definition we call more like good judgment. And on the other hand, we have a definition that we might even call judgmentalism, right? And many of our misunderstandings about what Jesus is actually saying here to his disciples and to us actually involve getting one of those things confused for the other. Because we can err in two ways. And the first way we can err is that we confuse good judgment for judgmentalism. But the second way that we can err, and it's equally wrong, is that we confuse judgmentalism for good judgment. What do I mean by that? Well, let's kind of dig in. And we're going to look at those two things, those opposite uh, errors that we can fall into. And then we'll look actually at what Jesus is calling us to and the, the pathway against both of these. So let's look at that first thing. What happens when we confuse good judgment for judgmentalism? Well, if, if you were to look up uh, in the Urban Dictionary, which, by the way, is not a dictionary, not a real dictionary, just in case you were looking for a real, <laughs> real meaning of a word, the Urban Dictionary would uh, you know, have this, this entry that said, don't judge me. When people say, don't judge me, this is what the Urban Dictionary says about don't judge me. That's what I usually have to say when I get drunk in the middle of the day and watch Blue's Clues. That's the Urban Dictionary's definition of don't judge me. Because you hear that all the time, right? People say, don't judge me. You're not supposed to judge me. Well, what do they mean when they say, don't judge me? Well, oftentimes what they mean is don't ever tell me anything that I'm doing is wrong. Stanley Hauerwas, pastor and writer, said this, most people today are always for the inclusion of every possible point of view except those points of view that do not include every possible point of view. Hear that? I am for the ability for anybody to say and do whatever they want unless your saying and doing says that I can't say and do whatever I want. The inclusion of every point of view except for the point of view that excludes every point of view. And that is oftentimes what our culture means by the word judgment. In fact, they will oftentimes cheer Jesus on with this, see, Jesus says don't judge, so you're not supposed to judge me. But actually, this is to confuse the idea of good judgment with the idea of judgmentalism. I was getting my hair cut the other day, and, uh, and the woman who cuts my hair said that, 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 that at the high school, where her kids, her, her child is actually very small, but where her child will end up going to high school, that they had an incident the other day that there's a group of kids who, who identify as animals and are fighting for their rights to be fed as animals in the school lunchroom. They want their food in bowls or in troughs, or they want to eat it off the floor or something, and they don't want to be told that they have to be, use utensils and eat like everybody else because they identify as animals. And we just thought, you know what? We have, we have truly landed in absurdville. Like, it is, it, this doesn't even look like regular life anymore where we are. 
But of course, uh, where we have landed is where we have been moving for quite some time as a society. Because that, those tracks have been laid, really, for, for not only the last few years we've been going really fast on those tracks, but they've been laid for quite some time. If you want to dig really deep into this, you should go get Carl Truman's book called The, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He dives deeply into uh, what it means, he says, the, the question that he begins with is, how do we get to a place in our society where somebody says, I feel like a man trapped in a woman's body, and that makes sense to everybody? And then he kind of traces the lines, really, of where our culture's been over the last few hundred years, by the way, and the movement toward that. And one of the, the main concepts that Truman talks about in this book is this idea called expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. And, and Carl Truman actually was interviewed in the magazine Table Talk the other day, thanks to Kathy for pointing this out to me, where he gives a few um, definitions of what he means by this. So listen to how Carl Truman talks about this idea of expressive individualism. He says, expressive individualism is the belief that each person must act based on expressing his or her core feelings and intuition. And in doing so, they become authentic. Or to put it another way, they become really themselves. Expressive individualism is the air we breathe. From fashion, I wear these clothes to express myself, to church. I attend this church because the worship speaks to me. We tend to operate as consumers of those things that make us happy and allow us to perform publicly in line with how we feel inwardly. Other people, formal institutions, and cultural traditions all tend to be seen in an adversarial light as threatening the individual's ability for self-realization. And in trans idolatry, even the body therefore becomes a problem to be overcome if it contradicts our inner feelings. So again, here's what Truman is saying. He's saying uh, in, in this, I, this, this cultural kind of um, understanding of, of expressive individualism, if I feel something inside, I need to express that thing outside because my expression of the thing that I feel actually makes me who I am. It actually identifies me as the, the real and true version of myself. My expression of my feelings is, is part and parcel to my personhood. So how, if that is the way that we understand our personhood, our humanity, how are we typically going to react to something like discernment? Let's say the church declares one thing right and another thing wrong. The church says, here's what we believe is wise and what we believe is unwise. Here's what we believe is true and what we believe is false. Well, if that is filtered through this idea of expressive individualism, then what's, it, what's going to happen is that we're going to hear that good judgment, discernment, and we're going to understand it as actually a condemnation of who we are. Because if my feelings and the way that I express my feelings create my own personhood and my identity, then if you disagree with my feelings or my opinions, then you have actually attacked and condemned me as a human being, as a person. That is to confuse good judgment with judgmentalism. But God's people, of course, have always been called to discernment. We have always been called to hold the truth tightly. We have always been called to good judgment. 
In fact, I think in verse 6, what Jesus is talking about with these strange kind of sounding illustrations of throwing pearls before dogs and pigs, what he is saying is don't give, don't call one thing holy that is not holy. Don't call something holy and clean that is actually unclean like a pig would have been to his Jewish audience. Understand the difference between what is good and what is, and what is wrong, what is bad. Understand the difference between what is true and what is false. He's actually calling us to discernment here. Christians are always called to practice good judgment. And so one error that we can fall into, and I think that we have fallen into this broadly speaking as a culture, is to hear the good judgment, the discernment coming from the church, and to receive that then as judgmentalism and as an attack on personhood and as condemnation. That's one of the errors that we can fall into. But of course, there is the opposite error as well. And it is to think that we are giving good judgment when really what we're practicing is judgmentalism. The word in Greek that, that Jesus uses here when he says do not judge is the word krino. It is, it is almost exclusively used in courtroom language. It's almost exclusively used in terms of that judging as, as condemnation, as a declaring one thing is actually better or right or wrong. It is actually mostly used of God's judgment. It is mostly used of God being the judge. And so oftentimes, uh, or this is one of the times where Jesus actually says, you are not to be taking on God's role as judge. And though in verse 5 he says, yes, practice discernment, or verse 6, he's actually spent the first five verses talking about what goes on in our own hearts. And as big as the problem is in our culture of us making the mistake of calling good judgment judgmentalism, I think what Jesus is saying is that the deeper problem is actually just the opposite because it lives in our hearts where we can have a critical spirit, where we can have the understanding that we are here given the authority to always enact judgment on those people around us and we are prone to becoming the judge of our own lives. I just want to explore for a few minutes, why is it that we do that? Why do we judge others? Why do we like to be the one who proclaims that you're wrong and I'm right? Well, I think there's a few reasons, things that go on in our hearts that are the reasons that we like to judge. The first is this, is that I usually think that I know everything. I usually think that I've got all of the information. I heard a story of uh, the, the pastor and author, Charles Swindoll. He was invited to speak at a, at a Bible conference one time, and at his, first, his first time speaking, a, a couple came, and they sat on the front row. And he noticed that, that every time he would speak, they'd come and they'd sit in that same place on the front row, but he also noticed that, that the husband, after about 10 minutes of him teaching, he would fall asleep. Uh, and I, I felt like, I feel, I feel you, brother. Um, and he would start to get kind of frustrated. You know, this guy comes and he sits there on the front row and then 10 minutes into my teaching every time he falls asleep. He starts to get kind of, kind of uh, you know, perturbed about this. And after one of these times, the, the wife actually comes up. She says, hey, when the conference is over, I really would, would love to come and talk to you. And he thinks, well, here it is, what I've been thinking all along, right? She wants to come talk to me about her husband who has no interest in spiritual things. And she dragged him to this conference and all he can do is sleep here. So the couple comes up and talks to him, and of course, to his surprise, that's not actually what this wife has to say. She says, you know, 
my husband has wanted to go to this conference so bad. And he drugged me here because he's such a big fan of you. You're his favorite Bible teacher. But he's in the midst of cancer treatment and chemotherapy. And he can, with all of this pain medication, he can barely drag himself here to keep himself up for 10 minutes at a time. But he wanted to come and meet you and hear your teaching. Whew. How do you think he felt then? All that judgment stored up, and he just didn't know all of the story. I did the same thing just the other day when I was talking to some friends of mine about, uh, about something that happened in, in somebody else's life to some other people that I don't even know very well. And some judgments that were made that I have like maybe 1% of the details about. And I've, I was going crazy mad because how could they do that? How could they do that to him? They're terrible people. What happened? I didn't have any of the information. I literally had to send my friends a text this morning <laughs> when I'm finally realizing, oh gosh, Lord, you know, you've been talking to me this whole time when I'm writing this sermon. And I had to send them a text saying, I was doing this exact thing. I was ready to pounce and judge, but I didn't know all the information. That's one reason we judge, right? Is that we think we know everything. Second reason we judge oftentimes is not only we think we know everything, but we think we can and should change everybody. We have the power and the authority to change everyone. And you know what? The world would be so much better if everybody just did things the way that I did things. The world would be so much better if, every, if I just kind of got to tell everybody what to do and they did the stuff I like and they did it my way and we did it the same way, then everybody would be okay. And I would feel okay about myself if everybody just kind of looked more like me. And I have to tell you, there's a, um, a chief offender and some of you are in this room and it's mother-in-laws. I'm sorry. The jokes are jokes because there's some truth to them. Uh, a, friend of mine, a friend of mine calls her mother-in-law the tipper. She just refers to her as the tipper because she'll do these things like, oh, uh, I, you're, you're going to give him that medicine? Hmm, you know, here's a tip. Oh, you're going to cook the chicken that way? You know, here's a tip for you, right? It's like, I think I'm going to do something great that's going to give you all of the information that you need so that you can do things exactly like I do them and everybody will be happier then. We think that not only we know everything, but we have the right and authority to change everybody. And if everybody did change and they were just like me, then the world would be so much better, wouldn't it? Or how about this one? And I think probably chief amongst the reasons why we are so prone to judge is that we actually don't understand our own failings. This is a human condition that we are prone to overestimate our abilities. It's something that we do all of the time. Uh, maybe, maybe you are like me and you love just watching <laughs> other people make mistakes, right? I mean, if somebody sends me a video or a GIF of a guy falling off a skateboard, I mean, I will watch it over and over and over because it just is always funny to me. And, and, you know, we have this fascination. There's a blog called The Fail Blog, and it gets thousands, it probably gets thousands of hits a minute because it's just a whole website full of people doing stupid things and a bunch of people looking at that website to laugh at people doing stupid things. We give this thing called the Darwin Awards. Have you ever heard of the Darwin Awards? We give these away every year. It's the award for somebody that's basically done the dumbest thing in the world and it's probably killed them. One of them, I remember, was a guy who um, he wanted his car to go really fast. That's cool. 
I'm down with that. A lot of young guys want their cars to go fast. And in his plight to get his car to go really fast, he purchased a rocket engine and attached it to his car. And his car did indeed go really, really fast. But it just so happens that rocket engine powered cars don't turn all that well. So the guy didn't end up in all that good of a place because his rocket powered really fast car just went straight when the road turned. But we love those things and we read about them and we're excited about them and we laugh and we pass them on to our friends because we think, of course, these idiots, we would never do something like that. We're so much better. But there's actually something going on in the human heart that is always elevating my ability over what it actually is. In fact, there's research that's been done on these kind of things. Uh, there were some, some high school students polled. High school students would never um, do anything stupid, I'm sure. But these students who were polled about how well they got along with their fellow students, 60% of them thought they were in the top 10%. 60% thought, I'm in the top 10% of, of being able to get along with my other students. Drivers are even worse. AAA has done, done polls to figure this out and found out that 83% of drivers think that they're above, an above average driver. 80, if you're a math person, that one doesn't work. 83% think that they are better than the average, and guess who the prime offenders are? 0.2% of 16 to 18-year-old drivers think that they are less careful than anybody else. <laughs> Insurance companies would beg to differ <laughs> with that. But that's what we do. We overestimate our abilities. This is what the, the dean of the Harvard Business School said. He calls it moral overconfidence. And listen to what he's written. In the lab, in the classroom, and beyond, we tend to be less virtuous than we think we are. And a little moral humility could benefit us all. Moral overconfidence is on display in politics, in business, in sports, really in all aspects, aspects of life. We, what studies find regularly is our generally inflated view of ourselves. Our generally inflated view of ourselves. We don't see others properly because we don't see ourselves properly. We have an inflated view of ourselves. And isn't this what Jesus says in this beautiful illustration he gives? He says, what you're doing is you're sitting back and you're looking and you're saying, oh, brother, let me help you. I can help you find and take out that speck that's in your eye, but all the while, there's a giant log in my own eye. Jesus is saying, you can't see clearly to practice good judgment and discernment on others because your view of yourself is so inflated that you don't see your own problems. There's a log in your eye that is blinding you so that you are prone to judge others. But the thing is, you, you don't know everything. You can't change them. And most importantly, there's a really big log in your own eye. Now let's just talk for a second about some application points. If these are kind of our, 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 our two possible errors, we've got an error on one side that says, okay, don't mistake good judgment for judgmentalism. An error on the other side that says, okay, don't think that you're practicing good judgment when you're really practicing judgmentalism. How do we kind of navigate that middle path in our lives? Well, how about some, some examples? One maybe is this. What do we think and do about the church down the street that believes something a little different than us? 
How are we to understand our relationship with other churches? What does it mean for us not to judge them? Well, does that mean that we actually erase all distinctives? That we actually think, you know what, it doesn't really matter what you believe in this world, and so we should erase all of those things? I don't think that it does. God has actually called us to to look at his word, to discern his word rightfully. It's good and right and true for us to have theological stances and even for us to have theological distinctives and to believe that those things are true. So we are called to good judgment, discernment, even when we come to God's word and we're trying to do the hard work of what God means that oftentimes will even separate us from other churches. And at the same time, God all throughout his word says that we are to practice unity, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, that we stand together in the family of God. And so we are not to mistake our kind of calling for good judgment and discernment and turn that into condemnation of those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. So discernment, good judgment, yes. Judgmentalism, no. How about in the way that adults understand their parents and the way that their parents brought them up? You know, it's good and right for us sometimes to sit back and, and, and do some hard work. Maybe this is work in front of a counselor. Maybe it's work, you know, with, a, with, with some, some helpful material that you've been given to actually discern the things that were hurtful in growing up. Some of us have wonderful parents. Some of us have some really parents that inflicted some deep wounds on us. Most of us have wonderful parents that may have also inflicted some deep wounds on us. That's part of living in a broken world. And it's actually good work for us to do to the discerning, good judgment work of figuring out how were we shaped in the homes that we grew up in? How does my family of origin, how has it even shaped the broken parts and the shadowy parts of who I am now? And how am I to understand that and actually call sin for what it is? How am I to do that in the proper way? While at the same time, to understand that, you know what, my parents for the most part, probably were doing the best that they could with what they were given. So how am I to practice both good judgment and discernment in understanding my upbringing and not to practice judgmentalism in condemning my parents for all of their faults? Or how about this? How are we to interact in the public sphere? How are we to talk about what is good and right and true in public? Maybe that's interpersonally, face-to-face. Maybe that's even on social media. And I think on one hand, we cannot fall prey to to the cultural view that we should just take everything that we have and swallow it hook, line, and sinker, and that we are to erase all of our distinctives and that we are to not call what is true, true, and what is false, false. We are actually called to walk into the world and to walk into the world with the claims of Jesus and to hold them high and to say this is what it means to be right and this is what it means to be wrong and this is wise and this is unwise and this is true and this is false. Christians are called to proclaim those things. And at the same time, we're called to move into all of our relationships understanding I don't know everything. I don't have the authority or the ability to change everyone. And also, there's probably a log that I don't see in my own eye. Now, let me just say, like I probably have said before, those conversations are always going to go a lot better face-to-face than they are online. 
But in the times that we are called to interact in a public sphere, we've got to figure out a way to navigate between those two extremes, between those two errors. So how do we do that? How do we find that middle place between those two potential errors? Here, I think, is the answer that actually the church has given for the last 2,000 or so years is two very important words, faith and repentance. You know, to actually go about the humble interaction with other people that, that understands that I don't always know what's going on, I don't have the ability to control what's going on, and I actually don't have the moral overconfidence to, to, to insert myself into everything that's going on, that actually takes a deep amount of faith and trust in God, doesn't it? Because all of those things are actually qualities that God has that we don't. God is the one who is omniscient and omnipotent. God is the one who changes hearts. God is the one who is perfect in in all capacities, who is holy and righteous. And so when we trust him, that you know, I can actually move about in this world not knowing everything because God knows everything. I can actually move about in this world not trying to change everybody because I know that it's the Holy Spirit who changes hearts. I can actually move about in this world with humility because I know that it is God and God only who is good, Jesus says. Well, that changes the way that we interact with others, doesn't it? When we trust or have faith in God's goodness and his ability, in his moral capacity more than our own, then it's going to change the way that we interact with the people around us. And then the second word, repentance. When Jesus says, look first at the log in your own eye, I think that's exactly what he's talking about. Repent. Look at yourself and look at yourself clearly. And before you look at somebody else, look at your own heart. And when you see the darkness in your own heart, there is a place to go to bring it before the Lord at the foot of the cross. And so that we, as those who start to look inwardly at ourselves, who begin to see our own sin, who begin to see those, those beams, those logs in our own eyes, we actually as Christians have a place to go with that. We have a place to go and that is to the foot of the cross where Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, all who have big logs in your eyes and whose eyes are blinded and I will come and I will give you not only rest, but I will give you sight and I will give you forgiveness. And in Romans 8, Paul proclaims this beautiful phrase that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Well, friends, as we we heard John Newton say before, if there's no condemnation for us, if we know that deeply and we understand that, then we we will cease to be, maybe even little by little every day, those who are turning that condemnation to others. Paul writes in Ephesians 2 that it is by the mercy of Christ the mercy of Christ that we have been raised to new life. And friends, if we understand that mercy that has been shown to us, then guess what We kind of people we will be? Instead of being judgmental people, we will be merciful people. We will pour out love and forgiveness and humility and mercy to others. Because as we begin to see the world through the light of the cross, as we see the relationships around us through the light of the cross, we are transformed. We hold just as tightly to the truth, maybe even tighter. But our hearts are softened, aren't they? We're humbled. 
we let go of our desire to change everything and to know everything and to be better than everybody else because we know that we have actually been given mercy. Friends, that is how we have been drawn today. And it's my prayer even that that is the work that Jesus will do in our hearts today. Will you join me as we pray for those things now? Father in heaven, give us, give us mercy. <laughs> make us merciful. Because of your mercy given, Lord, make our hearts merciful to others. That is the math of your kingdom. That those who have been shown mercy, that those who have been proclaimed no condemnation would be those who would be slow to judge and quick to forgive, slow to condemn and quick to be merciful. Lord, you said it even in the opening words of the Sermon on the Mount, that blessed are the merciful. Lord, we, have, we are those who have been shown mercy. So Lord, will you make us those who are merciful? Convict our judging hearts Show us how to navigate even the difficulties of the questions of this world. Keep us from letting go of your truth and keep us from holding on to self-righteousness. Lord, we know that the only way that we can do this is through the power of your spirit. So we ask you to work in our hearts now. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.